All right, Matthew chapter 15. I call this chapter the spin zone because Jesus does some things and it's very purposeful. They're connected together for a reason. And it's a little shocking to his 12 disciples because it kind of comes in wave after wave after wave. I think that's often how Jesus seems to work in our lives. It's like, hey, things are still, and then all of a sudden it's storm after storm. So right here, the disciples are going to be shocked in a couple ways. First, Jesus kind of destroys their heroes. We looked at that a bit on Sunday. I'll mention one thing on it. Then he really takes on their heritage, like what they had lived for, what had been the purpose for their life for 1,400 years, really, for Israel. He takes that on. Then he heals the wrong kind of person, and then he feeds some people that are a little surprising. So it's just kind of this wave after wave of Jesus doing things that are discomforting to the core of who these disciples are. And there's always a purpose to it. And it really culminates in chapter 16. So if you've ever had your core rocked, it's hard. Um, I've used this example before, but uh, the way that I understand, understood Christianity growing up was God wants you to obey his laws. That's essentially what I got. And now, I don't know if that's the way the church taught or if that's just how I heard. Sometimes there's a mixture of that. We, we're a legalistic church, and I just, God wants you to obey his laws. That's how you're saved. You obey his laws, and then you're saved. So I kind of had it reversed. So I go to college. I get on fire for Jesus, and I'm wearing the T-shirts. I'm doing everything. And I move in with these guys, and we'd been kind of together for a while, and of course, religion comes up. And they're all Christians, and this guy's name is Brad Welker, good friend still to this day. Brad starts to share with me grace, and he actually knew what grace was. And I just started to argue with him. I'm like, dude, that is not grace. That is not what grace means at all. And we went back and forth and back and forth, and I'm just going to the law, going to the law, going to the law. And then finally, I just said this to him, you're a new ager. I don't think you're saved. And I walked out. I had to write him a letter of apology a couple years later and say, you know what? You're not a new ager. You're saved. I was probably not even saved. I'm sorry, right? Because he was rocking some things in me that were core. He was challenging me in some areas where I just said, no way, that, that, that cannot be right. So that's what's going to happen to these guys, right? In this, this chapter, it's awesome. It just shouts, this is what the kingdom's going to be like. Get ready for it, all right? So verses one through nine, I don't want to go over that much, but we looked at that on Sunday, and here are these traditions that these men had grown up in, and um, the scribes and the Pharisees, these two guys and these two groups, rather, in verse one of chapter 15, they would be at this time the heroes that you as a parent would point your kids to and be like, please be like a Pharisee. Please be like a scribe. The scribes studied the scriptures. The Pharisees obeyed the scriptures. Be like one of these guys. They were the heroes who you would point your kids toward, right? It would be, hey, if you're going to idolize a football player, idolize Marcus Mariota, right? He's a good dude. If you're going to idolize somebody, idolize Francis Chan. Good guy. That's this idea. So these guys had been living for decades with the idea that the Pharisees and scribes, good dudes, really good guys. And then Jesus, we saw on Sunday, unloads on them. And so they reply, verse 12, like, dude, fix this, Jesus. Look what you're doing to our heroes. Fix this. Make this thing right. And Jesus shows absolute zero interest in fixing it because there's a deeper issue. Have you ever lost a hero before? Like someone you really idolize, you really thought this guy has it going on or this gal has it going on. And then you get closer to them and you realize, wow, they lose their temper like me. Wow, they have BO just like me. <laughs> They're not so super. When that happens, one of two things will happen to you personally. Either you'll get jaded towards them and kind of towards people like everyone's hypocrites, or it'll give you great joy because you realize, wow, they're human just like me. Wow, they're broken just like me. Awesome. There's a chance for me to be something. I always try to look at it that way. Ah, joy. They're just like me. They're part of the fallen humanity who's being redeemed and made into a new humanity by Jesus Christ. 
Awesome. Well, these guys lose their hero, and then Jesus, he just doesn't end there. He goes for number two, verse 10, their heritage. I'll try to put this in context after I read it. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. That's a way of saying, pay attention. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. When you think of, see the word defile, if you remember, it's probably two good months ago, I shared what it meant to be clean or unclean in the Old Testament. Certain things that if you touched them or if you ate them would make you unclean, and you have to go through a purification process to become clean. So the defiling, that's what it's saying. You can, it's chapter 8. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then his disciples came to him and said, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when you heard this saying? And he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. (laughs) And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. On Sunday, I said after Genesis 3, there was a snake that wrapped around the human heart. And it's like he put his fangs into us and began to just poison us. And out of that defiled heart comes all these things, evil, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Then verse 20, these are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So Jesus is taking out their heroes And now, he takes out their heritage. When you think about the Jewish people, what's the number one thing you think about them? Kosher food, right? That's the number one thing. It sets them apart. So when I was in Israel, here's what I did not know. I knew some of this. I didn't know the extent that it went. Orthodox Jews have two sets of dishes. One set of dishes for meat dishes and one set of dishes for cheese dishes. But they go one step further. Many of them will have two sinks. One sink for the meat dishes and another separate sink for the milk dishes. And many of them go one step further. They have two fridges. One fridge for the meat, another fridge for the cheese or the milk products. Now, why is that? Here's why. In Deuteronomy... 14 verse 21, it says this, don't boil a kid, goat, in its mother's milk. So they have built around that one little statement, all these rules, because there might just be the possibility that you eat a piece of cheese from the mom of the meat that you're eating. And so it might boil a little bit in your stomach and you break the law. So they've got all these kind of rules. Now imagine for a second, that's what you grew up in. Where in the world could you eat? Could you just go to McDonald's? No way. You're going to have separate restaurants, separate places to find food. It is going to totally make you a different kind of people. You're going to really be separate. So it identified them. That's why in Acts 10, when Peter is told by Jesus Hey, rise, kill, and eat. What does he say three times? Uh-uh. No way. It was that deep in him. So Jesus now says, hey, biology lesson for you. When you eat some food, you eat it, goes into your stomach, and then he, it, it, he uses the word latrine literally in um, it's verse 17. It just is expelled into the latrine. Biology 101. It's not defiling you. It's not changing you. Don't worry about it. This is a seismic shift for them. 
Verse 11, this little verse that we just read right over, is undoing 1,400 years of culture. That's what he's doing. That quick. Listen, it's not what you eat that defiles you. That's not it at all. But what comes out of your mouth, that is what defiles a person. It would be like me saying this right now. Hey, you know Martin Luther? 1517. Nailed his 95 thesis to the castle at Wittenberg. You know the Protestant Reformation? Calvin. Uh, you know our denominations now? All that's wrong. I'm converting to Roman Catholicism. Next Sunday, I will be wearing a backwards collar and a rope, and the entire service will be in Latin, Ave Maria. What would you say? Verse 12, right? You, that's offensive. What, what are you saying? You mean that didn't matter? That, that would be like me saying that. I'm undoing something that for us, just 500 years, has been real important to us, right? Right? That's what Jesus did in that verse. That's crazy. So why does he do it? Listen to his answer. Jesus doesn't even address this. I love number one, he just says this. It's verse 14. Leave them alone. I have that circled in one of my Bibles. Leave them alone. Why? My heavenly father will take care of this. These group, they're disagreeing with me. And now it's been a year. It goes all the way back to chapter 8. So this is not a new thing. Jesus has been going back with this group back and forth for a year. Doctrinally, traditions, the way he does stuff, who he hangs out with, this is not new. He's been doing it for a year. And so now he just says, you know what? Leave him alone. There's a point in life where maybe you have gone back and forth with maybe family members or friends or neighbors or other people, and maybe it's been a year, and you cannot agree doctrinally on something or philosophically on something. There's a time that you just do what Jesus says. All right, I'm just leaving this thing alone. I've tried. I've done my best. I've tried to make peace here. I've tried to get an agreement here. It's not happening. It's not happening. So, Jesus, I believe, reaches back into a parable when he says, what God has planted, he'll keep, and what God has not planted, he'll uproot. Does that sound like a parable Jesus gave? It's called the tares and the wheat. That God plants these certain seeds, and then the enemy comes, and what does he do? Plants other seeds. Now, if you know your Bible, seed is very important because it goes all the way back to Genesis 3, where there's there's the seed of the woman that produces righteousness, but then there's the seed of the serpent that is against the things of God. And you can actually march the seed all the way through the Bible. So Jesus is saying there, hey, listen, God will take care of his kids and he'll take care of those people as well. Don't worry about it. Let them alone. I don't need to figure out who's a Pharisee. I don't need to figure out who's a scribe. I don't have to set everybody's doctrine right. This is my new thing. I will talk with a person about a doctrine three times. If at three times we don't agree, Okay, I'm not bringing it anymore. I'm done then. Unless it's like cardinal doctrine. I'm talking kind of second, you know, just decide for stuff. Just kind of, hey, that's interesting. If I can't convince somebody, I'm done at that point. I'm just going to leave it alone. Because it's God's job to take care of them. And then guess what I get to just do? Love them. I just love them. Because the Bible says this, we're to have enough love to even love our enemies. How much more should we love fellow believers that maybe believe just a little bit different than us, if I can't convince them, eventually I just say, you know what? I'm leaving this thing alone, and I'm not going to worry about trying to convince them anymore. God will judge them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to respect them as brothers, as sisters. I love that. This is the new kingdom. The old kingdom, the Old Testament, there were clear markers what marked believers, right? those that were God's people. What you ate, Sabbath day, and circumcision. Those were the three big markers, and it was to tell everybody, hey, these are God's people. This marks them out. It shows very definitively who is supposed to be God's people. In the New Testament, what is the one mark of believers? Love. Very good. That's the one mark. Not bumper stickers, as good or as bad as those bumper stickers are. Not t-shirts that I wear, as good as bad as those t-shirts might be. Not going to only Christian coffee shops. 
because that ruins the opportunity to share the gospel. Those things don't mark believers. It's one thing. It's love. We are to love them because ultimately, I don't know people's hearts. That's the difficulty. God says in 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel is trying to anoint a new king and he sees David's older brothers, and he's like, that dude's a king and that dude's a king and that dude's a king and God keeps saying no, no, no. And what's his reason? He says, Samuel, you look on the outward, but I look on the heart and I have not chosen them. I've chosen the runt of the litter, David. So my job very often is to try once, twice, three times, and then just say, okay, Lord, I'm not able to work out peace in this situation. This has been ongoing for a while. I'm going to drop it. I'm not bringing it up anymore. I'm going to let it alone, let you take care of it, and I'm going to simply love them. That's the mark of the new kingdom. Do you guys remember my analogy of uh, the kingdom, a corral versus a watering hole? Yes, no? Okay, I'll share it again. Um, It's actually from a mathematical principle. It's called a bounded set. Anybody know what a bounded set is? Wow, I know more than you. Ha, ha, ha. Okay, a bounded set is a certain kind of way of saying, hey, these numbers are in and these numbers are out. But math is boring. This is an easier way to understand it. Religion to me is like this. It's like a corral, all right? So you have, a corral tells you what horses are in and what horses are out, right? You put your horses, the good horses or whatever horses, you put them inside of a fence and it's very definite who's in and who's out. Now you might have horses that are in that corral that actually want to get out. Like if they could, they're going to run away. And there might actually be horses outside the corral that want to get in. Their girlfriend's in there and they're like, how can I get in there? But they can't get in there, all right? That to me is religion. Religion has real clear boundaries to show you here's who's in and here's who's out. It might be dress, it might be food, it might be rules, it might be what you do or what you don't do. Real clear, it's like a corral. That to me is religion. That to me is what Jesus is dismantling. And the kingdom, to me, the kingdom looks a lot more like a watering hole in the Sahara. And I have a picture on my computer at home. I love it because it's summertime in Africa And there's this watering hole, and it has this massive lion drinking water, and 10 feet away from that lion is, guess what? A zebra drinking right next to him. Why? Because they know this is the source of life. I got to be right here. To me, a watering hole is a much better description of Christianity. And it doesn't matter necessarily these kind of boundaries we put. It really matters the direction you're headed in life. Because there could be some animal or some person that's at the watering hole, and actually they're really close to it, but they're heading away. And it might look like if you just took a snapshot, oh man, they love Jesus, they're really close to the watering hole, they love him. But in actuality, they're actually walking away from him. So what matters to me in Christianity is not um, the rules or the, the stuff you do, it's what is your trajectory? Are you getting closer to Jesus, the watering hole, or are you getting further away from Jesus? Are you willing to drink next to, or drink at the living waters next to people that you might think, what in the world is he doing here? What's the lion doing here? How could Jesus love the lion? He killed my brother. How could he do that? Are you willing to do that? Because to me, that's what Christianity is. It's not about um, putting up real safe boundaries that keep people out or keep people in. It's really a movement toward Jesus. Am I moving toward Jesus? because I know he is the source of living water. To me, that's the new kingdom. And that's what Jesus right now has to dismantle some stuff. He's like tearing down the fence, if you would, setting free the horses to figure out which way you're going to go. Are you going to come to me? Are you going to run away from me? I got to dismantle some stuff first. So that's the first thing he does. And then next thing is this. I love how we can evaluate the trajectory of our soul, because Jesus says this. It's verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Spurgeon put it like this. The well of the heart comes out of the bucket of the mouth. How do I know what my heart's doing? How do I know if my trajectory is toward Jesus or away from Jesus? Jesus told us how to evaluate what's coming out of your mouth because I'll tell you the condition of your heart which is what matters to God. Like here is my best illustration of this because we all know, know this is true. Uh, I taught a Bible study for a long time at T. 
Tea Time Cafe. It doesn't exist anymore. It's now the hall. But we used to go to Tea Time, a group of us, 6.30 in the morning, uh, Tuesday morning, and I cut my teeth teaching the Bible there. Sometimes it was 10 people. Sometimes it was two people. I didn't care. I hated it when it was one person because it's awkward. Hey, open your Bible now. <laughs> it's just weird teaching the Bible to one person. Usually we wouldn't. We'd talk. So it's just a great time. And uh, the night before, I was working on my house, and I'd taken a sledgehammer, and I had smashed my thumb. I still have problems with it. It doesn't quite work right. Just smashed. It was purple, about the size of a pancake. And so I'm sitting there. I was the first one there, and I had it like on the table because it wouldn't fit underneath the, underneath the table. And this guy, Justin, comes in. He's a good friend. He comes in. He sees my thumb. Dude, what happened? I tell him. The first thing he asked me was this. Did you cuss? I said, why'd you hear me? <laughs> Why? Because we all know, man, out of the heart comes what is really you when you're hit hard. That's really who you are. Now, thankfully, I did not cuss. The next dude in says the same thing. Hey, tell him the story. He he didn't even know Justin had said that. Did you cuss? Because we all know what is really us when things get hard, when you get hit, what comes out of your mouth is who you really are. So Jesus nails it here. We have an evaluation. What is coming out of your mouth? On Father's Day, I've been out of town a bunch. And so all I wanted to do on Father's Day was like get some stuff done at my house. So I said, kids, the one present you can give me is I have this stack of wood. It's a farm pack from plywood country. And I need it just moved. We had to move it quite a ways. I said, I just want that moved. If you guys would help me. And so for like an hour and 10 minutes, we just moved wood. That was the best Father's Day gift I've ever gotten. Working with your family when they actually are into it is like the best thing in the world. So we're moving it, and I'm stacking because I want it to be stacked a certain way. I'm a little OCD. So I'm stacking it. They're bringing it. And I dropped this board, and I was wearing tennis shoes right on my toe. I didn't know anyone was near me. I was just like, oh, my goodness. And Elijah was like, Dad, what happened? I'm like, oh, my goodness. I'm so glad I didn't say anything. <laughs> my son's right behind me. <laughs> Praise God. Thank you. You know, it's a constant way we can evaluate. Am I moving toward the watering hole or am I moving away? What's my heart coming out through my mouth? What's happening right there? And then the last one, and this is a freebie. I love just verse 20 as a parent because I think as parents... We make a big mistake. We make very often mountains out of molehills, don't we? I tell my wife she needs to write a book, How to Raise Your First Like Your Fifth, because we've just changed so much since Carissa now with our fifth Myron. Just changed. We're like, hey, that doesn't matter. But listen to what it says. I think you should really meditate on this. Um, These, what defiles you? This, verse 19, but to eat with unwashed hands, does not defile anyone. What's like the most important thing to parents? Wash your hands, right? We make big deals out of things that should not be a big deal. Do you have clean hands? I'm I'm for clean hands, but aren't there bigger things? I'm reading a parenting book, and I think it's the first parenting book I would ever say is a great parenting book. And I bought it just because of the title. The title is this, Never Say No. Right? As a dad, I'm like, what in the world is this? I got to read this book. And it's brilliant. It's the parents of the two brothers that started Switchfoot. And uh, it's, it's a cool format because the dad will write a chapter and then the mom will write a chapter. So you get a much more balanced than just one or the other. It's very balanced. And the first chapter that the mom writes is amazing because she, this one illustration was worth the money of the book. She says that she's in a restaurant just recently and she's sitting at this restaurant and they're eating their food and they're talking, having a good time. And they're sitting right next to this family with this little eight-year-old boy. And this little eight-year-old boy keeps saying to his mom, hey mom, look, I didn't get anything on my shirt. And they eat hey mom, look, I didn't get anything on my shirt. The whole meal, he keeps saying, look mom, I didn't get anything on my shirt. What's the priority in that family? Clean shirt. That in three weeks or three months, you can just throw away. And this mom said, where's the priority of, let's go celebrate. Let's go laugh. Let's laugh until something other than air comes out of our nose, right? Let's do that. Let's have a great time. No, the priority is, 
make sure your shirt's clean. Sometimes I think we make big deals out of the wrong things as parents. And then we look back and we just say, why did we do that? Why do we care about that shirt? I should have been caring about his soul. Why do I care about that thing? Oh, I shouldn't have. I think as parents, we should always be going back and circling and saying, evaluating, what's the big message I'm actually sending my kids right now? Is it have a clean shirt? Because I don't care about that shirt. I don't care if you get it dirty. Are we having a good time? Are we celebrating? Are we enjoying this unbelievable planet that our good heavenly father has given to us? Are we laughing? Because that, to me, is the big priorities. It's not. No one's defiled by eating with unwashed hands. We use a fork anyway, so, I mean, come on. So, freebie, verse 21. Now, Jesus heals the wrong person. Jesus went away from there. There's a movement right now. Pay attention. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, the Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Okay. Jesus... From verse 1 through verse 20, has been critiquing Israel, right? These Pharisees, these scribes, these traditions, these elders, your traditions break God's commands, right? Very hard on those guys. Then he critiques this law that they've been keeping for 1,400 years saying, no, it's not what you eat that defiles you. It's not what it's about. So he has, if you would, left a lot of Judaism behind at this point. He's leaving Judaism. And then physically, verse 21, you're supposed to see this, physically, he leaves the land. He goes to Tyre and Sidon. If you know your map, Tyre and Sidon are outside north of Israel, and they are historic enemies of Israel. Jesus is going into enemy territory. He has left Israel philosophically, and he's leaving Israel geographically. So it's like Jesus has left the building, and then he seems really mean, doesn't he? When you read this, doesn't it seem mean? This woman comes, I got this daughter who's having difficulty. Jesus ignores her and ignores her and ignores her, appears to call her a dog, right? I mean, you're just like, this seems mean. And his answer is verse 24. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean he's only helping people from Israel? The answer is yes and no. Because he's healed a centurion servant, chapter 8. He's healed two demoniacs that were in the Decapolis, which is a, a Greek area. Most likely they were Greek people. So he has helped other people, right? Now, no doubt Jesus' mission is to keep the covenant with Israel, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, totally. So it's yes in those ways, but there's been these breakthroughs of Jesus showing my kingdom's gonna be bigger. Genesis 15, three is gonna come true, that the seed of Abraham is gonna be a blessing to all nations. And in Matthew 28, we get that, go into all the world and preach the gospel, all right? So yes, the primary trajectory of Jesus is to Israel, but Jesus has no problem helping other people. So you have to realize there is some other dynamic that's happening here, happening here, right? Like, does he call her literally a dog? There's something else going on. So you got to get into it a little bit, and the context of chapter 15 is huge, 
right? Jesus has, if you would, left behind a lot of Judaism. He's left Israel. So there is a flow to this that you have to get, right? It's not about traditions. It's not about outward stuff. It's about your heart. It's not about kosher food. It's not what you eat that defies you. It's what comes outside of your heart. And then he shows up in this region, traditional enemy of Israel, and a Canaanite woman. Does Canaanite ring a bell in anyone's mind? Canaanites, were they good people or bad people? Bad, right? God says, I'm giving them 400 years to repent, but they just got worse and worse and worse and worse. So he's, it's, it, this woman has three strikes against her. She's a woman, which was a strike against you back in those days. She's an enemy, and she's a Canaanite. Three strikes against her. But look what she does. She comes to Jesus, and she says, verse 22, O Lord, son of David. What does son of David mean? It's messianic. Messianic to who? Canaanites? No. It had one meaning, and it was to the people of Israel. So it's like this. She is using Jewish Davidic covenant lingo that means absolutely nothing to her. These aren't promises to you. This isn't anything for you to be talking about, right? It's like this. Growing up, we had people, I call them posers. You guys know what a poser is? It's like they'd dress like gangsters, and they'd be like, they'd have all the lingo, and they'd all talk and be like, bro, you're not a gangster. You weren't born in Compton. You live in Starlight, man. You are not a gangster, right? It's like this poser. You're just putting on a show. This isn't really who you are. Okay, this lady is putting on a show. That's not who she is. These things mean nothing to you. So to me, Jesus actually responds to her in covenant language. You want to use covenant language with me? I'll use it back to you. I'm not sent to you. I'm only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. If you're going to use those terms with me, I will talk back to you in those same terms. I think Jesus does this all the time. You want to use those lingo with me? Fine. We'll talk that lingo then. Fine. If you look at the parable of the talents, the last guy that doesn't do anything, he says, I just thought you were a mean, terrible dude, and I was afraid, so I hid my stuff. How does the master respond to that dude? Take it away from him and throw him into outer darkness. If you think I'm mean and terrible, okay, that's what you get. So Jesus here, if it's, it's obvious, he's saying, you want to talk to me in that kind of language, I'll respond the same way. But then she changes. Verse 25, Lord, help me. She changes, becomes honest, authentic, humble. And Jesus uses an analogy of a dog. He is not calling her a dog, right? If I go into my kid's bedroom and I tell them, your bedroom looks like a... Am I calling them a pig? Yes and no, but... It's an analogy a little bit, right? That's the same analogy. Jesus is just using an analogy. Hey, look it. I have priorities. These are my priorities. It is Israel that's my priority. I'm giving them first shot. So yes, it's an analogy of priority. She undermines it, doesn't she, though? She says this. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. That's what Jesus was looking for. The master is so generous that even the dogs in his house have something to eat. And Jesus says, That's the kind of faith I want. Chapter 15, I don't want traditions, don't want rule keepers. Don't want people that think eating the right food makes them better than somebody else. What I want is people that have the kind of faith like Abraham. What was Abraham's faith? Chapter 15 of Genesis, where God says, hey, Abraham, I know you have no kids, but I'm going to give you more kids than the stars in the sky. And what does it say Abraham did? He believed God. And God says, yes, you believe I'm a generous, good God. I love you, Abraham. This lady, same thing. You believe I'm a generous, good God. I love that faith. That's what Jesus has been looking for. He's found it in the most unlikely spot. When finally a Canaanite woman says, I'm not playing games with you anymore. I'm not going to use this kind of lingo that means nothing. I'm going to come to you in humility, no formula, no King James-ish stuff. Just who I am at your feet. And Jesus says, that's what I've been looking for. 
So much of Christianity is game playing. And I think Jesus does this with us all the time. You want to talk that way to me? I'll talk that way to you. I'm just waiting for you to come to me like Abraham and have faith in me as a generous, good God. That's all I'm waiting for, to speak to me that way. So a week and a half ago, I think it's right, not Friday, but the previous Friday, um, I was in between coming home from Israel, and then I was heading off to school, and a, a guy who is a professional counselor in Grants Pass, a friend, um, he said, I need you to meet with somebody before you go. Uh, he just said, you, he said, I think you have something she needs. I can't seem to get through to her. So because of that relationship, I said, okay, sure. Hadn't met with this gal before. So we met at the office, and um, it was one of the stranger counseling things I've ever had. Um, she, she's been hurt, and that, you know, it, it's not fun talking to someone who's been hurt. Uh, it's just a hard thing. Broken world. We have a bad enemy. Wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He does a really good job. Our job is to push back against that. So she's been hurt really bad, and it just hurts to hear that. And then she did something I've never seen before. She took her hand, and she hit herself in the head about 12 times. And, and if you've seen, we kind of moved things around the office. Literally, I was this close to her while she's doing it. And she's looking at me right in the eyes as she's doing it. And, you know, there's a, there's a like, what do I do in that moment? There's that kind of, what do I do in this moment? And I just thought, you know what? I just need to sit here and think. And so we processed forward. I asked her some questions. You know, why did you do that? What's happening? Did you do that? Um, it, it was a very animated conversation for about an hour and a half. And after this kind of animated conversation, she's getting agitated. And she said, I just want you to pray for me. And just, just, that's what I just want you to do. And so I told her, I said, I'm not going to pray for you. She said, why not? You know, that's what I'm here. I'm here for you. Just pray for me. Like, wave a magic wand over here. I said, that's not going to help you. I said, what you need to do is you need to pray. And after you're done praying, I'll pray for you. She goes, I'm not praying. I'm not praying. I'm, you know, a lot of bitterness and kind of anger towards God. And I said, well, then I'm not going to pray for you. And so she says, okay, fine. Lord, help me. I said, you can't pray like that. I said, here's what I need you to do. When you pray, I don't want you to use the word Lord, and I don't want you to use the word just. And I say that because we use those words in kind of the rote prayer that everybody kind of falls into. And so by forcing you not to use those words, and I'll stop people when they do, it makes you actually pray your spirit to God's spirit, where you're thoughtful, where you're honest, like this woman. And so she just sat there and stared at me. We just stared at each other for probably like, it was an awkward staring time. I'm just sitting there. She's just staring at me. Like at least a minute. And finally, she just gave up. She went, okay. And she started praying. And she prayed. And it was one of the greatest prayers I've ever heard. She is sobbing. And cr- I'm sobbing and crying because of all the pain. And she's just crying and sobbing and, and just absolutely broken. For probably, I think it was about eight minutes. And then I prayed for her. And she wrote me two letters when I was away. And she said, I woke up Saturday morning and I never had more joy. I've never been more free in my life. I got an, yeah. I got an email from the, the counselor. He just said, she's a, she's a, I've never seen her like this. I've been dealing with her for a while. She is a transformed woman. Why? Because she was authentic. She stopped playing the Christian game with the Christian words, with son of God. No, I need help. My daughter needs help. I think that's what Jesus is waiting for. That's what this chapter is about moving into the kingdom. This is not about following the rules. This is about loving me, your Savior. This is what this is about, coming to me honestly and humbly. That's what it is. So Jesus now heals the wrong person. Disciples are like, oh my goodness. Canaanite, they've said what? Get her out of here. Jesus instead deals with her kindly, but no doubt strongly, and she ends up healed. Then, verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered. 
And when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, they glorified the God of Israel. Now, if you read this chapter, verses 29 through 31 almost seem out of place. Why are they there? Here's why. Remember, Jesus had been around the Sea of Galilee. He had left, gone up to Tyre and Sidon, almost leaving Israel. What does he do now? He comes back. That's what verse 29 is telling you. He went from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. Jesus comes back. He has not given up on people. You might be mad at me. I know you're trying to kill me. I know we're having these things. I'm not going to give up on you. Now, I don't personally believe he's actually in Israel because verse 31 says this, they glorify the God of Israel. So I think Jesus is actually on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, but he's making his way back down because in verse 39, you'll see he actually crosses to Magadan, which is on the west side. That's just a bunch of You can look at a map. But here's what's happening. Jesus is not giving up. He's coming back. Jesus does not give up on people. Do you know that? You can deny him three times like Peter. He'll come back. You can betray him like Judas. What are the final words Jesus says to Judas? Friend, what seekest thou? After he's betrayed, after he's led the guards to where they're at, right before he's going to kiss him, Jesus gives him one final chance. Friend, what are you seeking? It's really a way of saying, bro, what are you doing? Bro, what are you doing? You don't have to do this. All the way to the end. Jesus does not give up on people. If you have a son, if you have a daughter, if you have a parent, if you have an uncle, if you, whatever, listen, Jesus does not give up on people. He goes after the one. He leaves the 99 and goes after the one. That's why Jesus is so good. So then he ends this way, verse 32, and I'll be quick here. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. You ever gone three days without eating? You're hungry. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a great crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowd, he got into a boat and went to the region of Magadan, which is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Does this story sound familiar? It should, because the exact same thing happened in chapter 14. So when you think about this and you read verse 33, and the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such great a crowd? Don't you think for a second, like, man, don't you remember? Don't you remember like three days ago what Jesus did? I mean, really? Here's why. When you think about God giving bread to people, what story always comes to mind? Manna, right? 40 years, six days a week, manna was given to God's people over and over and over, right? The recipients of that manna were always Israelites. In chapter 14, where is Jesus? He's in Israel. He's feeding Israelites. Now Jesus is not in Israel. I think when you see verse 31, they glorify the God of Israel. It's, hey, hey, your God over there is great God, right? They doesn't say that. Israelites don't say it that way. They just say they glorified God. So it's naming, hey, your God is a good God. So they're outside of Israel. So this is what the disciples are thinking right here. We're on the wrong side of the lake. Jesus can't do it over here. These are the wrong kind of people. Jesus can't do it here. Before it lined up right, like Moses gave it to the Israelites, Jesus gave it to the Israelites, but now it's Gentiles. God doesn't feed Gentiles. Jesus can't do it here. You ever thought that way? 
You ever looked at your situation and maybe God helped you in the past, but then you look at your situation right now and you say, nah, Jesus can't help in this one. Circumstances are different. Situation is not the same. It's not like the Bible. It's something different. So Jesus can't help me here. And I do that all the time. I'm always doing that, in fact. Nah, not in this situation. In fact, I did it on Saturday. Yeah. So I've been gone, got home. My daughter, Gabrielle, is having a birthday this week, and she wanted the hot tub fixed. So we got a hot tub for free off Craigslist, and it's just sat. And finally, I said, okay, I'll fix it. So I go out there, and, and we fill it up with water, and um, it would turn on for like two seconds and then turn off. And so I've got out my own meter, and I'm checking everything, and, you know, engineering me is like coming out, and no, this thing is broken. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, Gabrielle, not going to work. And so I'm praying over dinner, and as I'm praying over dinner, there's this little voice that said this, why don't you pray that the hot tub gets fixed? You know what I thought? That's the stupidest thing in the world. God doesn't solder, for crying out loud. It's broken. That is stupid, right? My wife has no problem like praying that way. I cannot pray that way. Broken vehicles, broke. I'm just like, hey, I'm an engineer. I know why this thing broke. I know how to fix it. I don't pray that way, right? God doesn't work in these situations. Guess what I did? I said, Lord, you know, Gabrielle wants the hot tub. I don't care. I'd love to see it fixed. Amen. Gabrielle went out Sunday morning. She came back in. Dad, the hot tub's hot. Oh, man, I'm like, really? Why can't I just fix it? I mean, why? Why can't I just get the glory? <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. It shouldn't work. <laughs> I'm serious. It shouldn't work. <laughs> I don't think God loves me. God loves Gabrielle. That's what I think it is. He's like, Matt, you're just such an obstacle to faith and to me working. I mean, goodness gracious. Why do we limit Jesus all the time? Why do we do that? Why is that such? We're all like the disciples. Can't work here. Jesus constantly said, ask. There will always be an excuse why God cannot work. I call that crumbling faith. We got to have the faith of this gal, the Canaanite woman. All I need is a crumb. God, you're so big and so powerful. I just need a crumb. This is nothing for you. Big God, I want to have crumb faith. God, all I need is a crumb. Faith chooses to see how God can work. That's what faith does. That's what Abraham said. I don't know how it's going to work. I'm 100 years old. I don't have a kid. But I believe in you. That's faith. That's this Canaanite woman. That's what God is looking for. So this chapter begs these questions. It begs question number one. Do we do religious things that allow us to sin? Because that was the whole deal I talked about on Sunday. Your traditions of korban, it's dedicated to God, allow you to break God's commandments. Do we do stuff like that? For me, James 4.17 is always so convicting because it says this, to you who knows what to do and don't do it, that's a sin. How many things do I know I should do? I don't do it. For some reason, all kinds of good reasons, do we have little religious things that allow us to sin and hurt God's people? Do we allow grace to let us sin? Because Romans would say, God forbid you do that. Do we have things that we kind of uh, attach ourselves into? Like, I love the United States of America. I'm so glad to live in this country. I love parts of nationalism, but I hate parts of it. Because we get to this mentality for God and for country, where we begin to think like the two great commands are love God and love country as yourself, America. No, it's love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. We have to be careful of these things because they can creep in and we start hurting people. Do we pray like this Canaanite woman where she uses fancy terms and formulas to try to get what she wants? Like we're trying to bang the God genie enough so he'll drop the goods to us. It doesn't work with God. God wants humble, authentic people in relationship with him. And we play games. I think God just plays, like Jesus, you want to talk that lingo? We'll talk that lingo. We're supposed to be those that let our spirits commune with him. And lastly, 
Do we make excuses why God can't work instead of asking, God, how are you going to work? I mean, how are you going to work in this? This seems impossible. How are you going to work? How are you going to work in my family or this crisis or hungry people or my marriage or grants pass? How? I can't wait to see how. Because I know you want to work. That's the way to pray. That's the way. So as we take communion, I would ask that you consider those questions. Do do I have little religious things I do that really let me sin, hurt people? Do I... Do I pray in a real, authentic way? Or do I use like formulas that are real tired? And do I truly, truly believe God can work? And am I asking him to? If you don't, here's the great thing. God's the changer of hearts. He's the purifier of hearts. He's the one that causes us to want to come to the watering hole and drink deeply of him. So... Consider those questions. We'll take community together as a body. So, Father, I thank you for the incredible work of your son. That you took down the fence. That you freed us from ourselves. That what you desire is not puffed up chests and posturing what you desire is humility that you resist the proud but you give grace to the humble therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might lift you up I pray this day Lord God that we would celebrate the victory that you've given to us that our prayers would not be small prayers our prayers would be big prayers we'd live lives of expectancy that we would know if you conquered death there is nothing created no principality no height no depth no no breadth that can separate us from your love from your plan for your from our destiny with you lord god so i pray as we eat Pray that we might have our faith stirred up, strength given to us, power to live like you, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you and that you would begin to change us by the power of your spirit into the same image. Pure hearts, passionate about your kingdom loving you and loving those that we're connected with. So let's eat together. I thank you for forgiveness, Lord, that you cleanse us. And I pray for myself, Lord, where I'm selfish, where I use religious terms with you instead of being real, where I make excuses why you can't do something instead of leaning into your greatness and power, Lord, I pray you cleanse me of those things. I pray that for every person in here. Let's drink together.